Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. That's our passage today, 1 Samuel 16. The, the key concept today is this, the pathway to greatness includes blessing others. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, we're going to look at a number of mini lessons as we go through the, the chapter, and that one actually relates to the last of the mini lessons that we'll see uh, regarding David. As David comes onto the stage in our treatment of 1 Samuel, we're going through the book uh, chapter by chapter, and previously in our series, we have seen King Saul disqualified as the king of Israel due to his own disobedience. That happened back in chapter 13. It is reiterated again in chapter 15 as once again Saul rebels against the clear advice of God, and each of these times it is Samuel who has to tell Saul, God has rejected you. You will no longer be the king of Israel. But this does not give Samuel any joy or any satisfaction. Rather, each time he has to reiterate that message, uh, he mourns the loss of the possibilities that King Saul had initially dem demonstrated. Initially, it looked like things were going to go well. But God is turning the page, and Samuel now is sent to Bethlehem to anoint the next king. Let's pick up the reading in chapter 16, verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How, Lord, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, verse 2, But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. We'll stop the reading there for a moment. Samuel is afraid. When God gives him this particular direction, fear wells up within him, and he's wise to be afraid because Saul is still the king. The army is still in place. He's still the commander-in-chief, and he, in no doubt he'll hear about Samuel traveling to Bethlehem and wonder what is going on. And so Samuel is afraid to go and to, to follow the Lord's command. There is a, a fearful situation before him, and the reality is, for many of us, fear is an everyday experience. There's an existential fear that is uh, part of our lifestyle today. I don't know if you've noticed it, but you can think back, I'm sure, to when the news was filled with the fact that there was a, a serial killer walking the streets of Stockton. And almost everybody I talked to during that period of time just recently spoke about the fear that they felt. And fear is translated to everyday objects. There's much more mundane fears, and it seems like we have reason to fear. This past week, I read some statistics that are kind of surprising to me. I read that almost 50,000 50, people in the United States are injured every year by things like pencils, pens, and desk accessories. How does that happen? but it causes me to be afraid to go into the office a little bit. I read more than 400,000 people in the United States every year are injured by chairs, sofas, and sofa beds. That's surprising. And this year, and I also read a statistic, uh, 142,000 people per year receive emergency room treatment for injuries inflicted by their clothing, zippers, and buttons. 
It makes you afraid to get dressed in the morning, right? Fear is all around us, everyday objects and more serious situations that we see. And Samuel, in this situation, is fearful for his safety. He's afraid of what Saul's going to do if he finds out that he's on a mission to anoint a new king. Samuel has turned the present king into his enemy. And even if you know you have enemies, and even if the king is your enemy, and if the way forward is treacherous, what we see from the beginnings of this story is that God has a plan. And we are called to bravely follow that plan. There's a, a great verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 24 says this, Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. I love that, that verse because God is saying there, you know what? I know your concerns. I've always known your concerns. I know your fears. I've always seen the things that you're faithful, that you're fearful of. And before you even speak the words of concern in prayer, I already have a plan to help you out. And the Lord gives Samuel a plan. He says, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to seek out Jesse because one of his sons is the next king. And we know that that was David, the youngest. But Samuel doesn't know that as he goes. And discovering that turns out to be quite a process. But to go there, God has a cover story, if you will, for Samuel. His plan includes soothing Samuel's fear. Pick up the reading in verse 2, the middle of the verse. It says, The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I will indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Do you see what the Lord is doing for Samuel here? It would certainly not have been safe for him to go to Bethlehem and to verbalize the fact that he's going to anoint the next king. The word would get out. He would be in danger. But God sees to the fact that he can go there in safety by giving him this cover story, if you will. Take a heifer and go to Bethlehem to sacrifice. And by the way, invite Jesse to the sacrifice as well. God gives him a plan, a plan that soothes his fears. And I take great comfort in that in this aspect of the story. It comforts me to see that God is concerned about the internal struggle that Samuel is going through. God is concerned about the fear that he sees in Samuel's heart. He knows that this plan could be risky. And God is being gentle with Samuel here, realize, realizing that things aren't going according to the way that Samuel had planned, but he's gently assuring him there is a very acceptable way for you to travel to Bethlehem. You're the priest. Go make a sacrifice. It will be completely accepted. And that's just what he does, and that just, that's just what happens as he follows the plan of God. But when he gets to Bethlehem, he finds out that the townspeople are actually afraid of him. I mean, after all, 
Why is the high priest here? The high priest and the prophet rolled into one Samuel. He's not something that, that they expect to see walking into their village. And they don't roll out the red carpet right away because the first thing that comes to their mind, which, which would be the first thing that would come to our mind, is this must be bad news. What has happened that has brought Samuel here? Why, why is he coming to our town? It's like when you were a kid and you're in school and you're sitting at your desk and someone comes into the classroom and hands the, your teacher the, a note. And the teacher looks at the note and then looks at you and then walks down to your desk and whispers in your ear, the principal wants to see you. Not many of us said to ourselves in that moment, well, that's great. I've been meaning to talk to that guy. Not many of us said, well, I'm sure he's wanting to give me an award of some sort. No, we said, uh-oh, what did I do? And that's exactly what the Bethlehem people are saying as they see Samuel walking into the town. Uh-oh, what did we do? Why is Samuel here? Do you come in peace? And he assures them that they do, they come, they come in peace. I point that out because their fear of him, their instinctive almost rejection of his presence is just one more obstacle in Samuel accomplishing the plan of God, accomplishing the mission that God has for him. There are obstacles along the way. But the point I want you to see is that even though we encounter obstacles along the way of accomplishing the, the work that God has for us, God always makes the work doable. It might not be easy, but it's doable. And what's so important about that is sometimes we slip into this mindset that says, the first time I hit any kind of resistance to what I think God wants me to do, well, that just means I should give up. It, just, it means God's not in it. It means this isn't the plan after all, but that's not the case. There will be resistance. There will be objection. There will be obstacles. But the plan will always be doable. Not necessarily easy, but doable. Samuel learns that lesson, and we need to learn that lesson as well. And so he invites them to the sacrifice. Jesse and his sons are invited to participate in the sacrifice as well. And as a part of this experience, Samuel meets seven of the sons of Jesse. We'll pick up the reading in verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Now, before we get to the main point I want to make from that section of our passage, I want you to see something that amuses me. And that is, Samuel is a little ticked off at the fact that Jesse doesn't bring all of his sons. Because when he finds out that there's a son still out in the field, he says, no one's sitting down until he, he, till he gets here. But then when, he, when David is revealed to him, what, what does the Scripture say? God says, rise and anoint him. In other words, Samuel sat down. The rest of you, you keep standing. 
just indicates he's a little angry with these guys. You keep standing, but Samuel sat down, and when David came in, he saw that this is the one. But it begins with a bit of exasperation on Samuel's part. You can almost hear the exasperation in his voice. Are these all the sons that you have? You can almost hear the next question. Is there another Jesse who lives in this town who has a bunch of sons? Am I getting this wrong? You see, David was not invited to the meeting. Jesse's sons were supposed to come to the sacrifice, but David was left off the list. And you can understand why that might have happened. Two factors come into Jesse's mind. He's saying to himself, well, somebody has to stay with the sheep. I'm not going to hire a babysitter for the sheep. I don't know what, what's going on with this sacrifice. So, so the youngest stays and watches the sheep. And also David, being the youngest, is considered the least, the one who's not quite ready for prime time, and he's off the list. But when Samuel stresses the fact, are these all your sons? Don't you have any more sons? Jesse's like, well, yes, come to think of it, we do have the youngest out in the fields with the sheep. It's an insight for us. It's an insight for parents. It's an insight for all of us who may not have an equal consideration of the people around us. He, we, he, Jesse had a preconceived idea about who was ready, about who would go far, about who would succeed. And Jesse did not open the door of opportunity equal for all of his sons. But what we see here is that heroes come in surprising packages. Sometimes heroes come in, uh, in packages that we would not necessarily choose or we wouldn't pick up on it. But we need to be careful not to sell anyone short because worth is hidden sometimes. I read just this past week about a man named George Owen. George Owen, in 1945, had the opportunity to purchase one of only five Liberty Head nickels minted in 1913. Is it on the screen? We have a picture of the Liberty Head nickel. In 1913, just five of these nickels were, were minted. I have no idea why just five, but just five were minted, which of course makes the collection of these things uh, a very sought after. And in 1945, George Owen paid $3,750 for one of these nickels. But he brought it home and he said to his family, uh, this nickel is going to make us uh, a fortune one day. Fast forward to 1962. 1962, George was killed in a car crash. The nickel was still in his possession. The family had heard the rumor about this uh, nickel that was worth a fortune in his belongings. So they searched through his belongings and they, sure enough, found the Liberty Head nickel. They took it to be appraised and the appraiser determined that George's nickel was a fake. It wasn't the real Liberty Head nickel minted in 1913. And the family, believing that appraisal, somewhat discouraged, obviously, took the, the, the coin home. They put it in a box. The box was in the bottom of a closet literally for decades. Fast forward to 2003. The other four Liberty Head nickels minted in 1913 went on display, uh, and uh, a collector had, had, had purchased them. It was a display that was traveling for people to see, and while it was happening, they offered a million-dollar prize for anyone who could produce the fifth Liberty Head nickel. 
Now, by this time, George's nephew, Ryan Givens, had heard the rumor about the nickel, had heard the story of the disappointment that it wasn't the real deal, and he knew that it was in a box in the closet, but he thought to himself, you know what, I'm just going to take a shot. So he got that Liberty Head nickel out of the closet. He took it to six appraisers, and all six announced, no, in fact, this is the fifth Liberty Head nickel. And given that fact, Ryan Givens uh, negotiated a $3 million sale for the Liberty Head nickel he had. Can you imagine having a coin in your closet floor for decades worth $3 million and not knowing it? And as bad as that is, overlooking the worth of a person is even worse. Because here's David being overlooked. But David was just what God was looking for. And here's what, David, what, ma what made David likely to succeed in God's eyes. In, in, the, in the gospel author Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, says this about David. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. This is God speaking. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David wasn't perfect. You read his story, that's very obvious. But God looked at his heart, and when God looked inside David, he saw, first of all, a heart of dependence upon God. And that's how we are to live, depending upon God. David's the kind of person that God wants to raise to leadership because he knows that David will depend on him. In Psalm 62, David writes these words, My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. These are the words of a man with the kind of heart that God wants in those He will, he will use. And David had a servant heart. He was humble enough and willing enough to simply obey, to do the job that was right before him. And he learned that job in the hidden valleys as the shepherd where he served his father and his family, doing what need to be, needed to be done. And this combination of dependence upon God and a readiness to serve is exactly the combination that God is looking for in his people. And so in verse 13 of chapter 16, David is anointed in secret. We read, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The one they didn't invite was the one that God was looking for. Be willing to be surprised in the value that God places on people that we might not invite, that we might cross off our list. Be willing to speak a word of encouragement to someone who might not see the value in themselves. Be willing to look children in the eye and say to them, you can achieve. The sky is the limit. Reach high in your aspirations. Make sure you seek God dire God's direction because God has a plan for you. And when children hear that from parents and Sunday school teachers and youth leaders, it's a significant impact on their heart. We need to let them see their value. Another thing we see in this series of events is that sometimes God's next step for us is suddenly revealed. Nobody sent David a proposal. There was not a letter of invitation. There was no form to fill out. Should you accept the possibility of being king one day, please submit these forms. There was none of that. 
He's called into the meeting, and Samuel takes one look at him and is assured by God, this is the guy, and he is anointed. And effectively, everything changes in David's future in that motion, in, in that moment. Why is that? Because behind the scenes, God's will for David was always in motion. And behind the scenes of our life, God's will for us is always in motion. He's always leading. There is a next step. And sometimes the next step is a big one. And we need to be courageously willing to take the next step as God shows it to us. What I, what I know about life is that God doesn't show us all the steps that are before us. But He does show us the next step. And when it comes... We need to say yes. And David was ready to say yes. And we can't skip the very most important part of all of this. It's found in verse 13. Because as David was anointed by Samuel, it says, the Spirit of God came on David from that time forward. The oil that Samuel poured on him was just oil. The words that Samuel spoke over him were just words. Samuel's just a man. None of those things in and of themselves were going to enable David to be ready to do the job that God had for him. The power came from the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit works differently than He works in the New Testament and, and in our times today. On this side of Pentecost, today, when you come to Jesus and you surrender your life to Him in repentance and turn to Him as your Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. Every born-again believer has the Holy Spirit, and that does not change. Now, you can mute His voice due to rebellion, and you can grieve His heart due to sin, but He remains there ready to fill you up again as you surrender yourself to Him. But in the, Holy Spirit, but in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people as they were set apart for a specific task. And here, David is set apart, and the Holy Spirit comes on him to enable him to accomplish the work that God has called him to. It reminds us of another mini lesson, and that is when God opens a door and He gives us a calling on our life, He also gives us what is necessary to accomplish that calling. He equips us with what we need to be able to be successful there. David receives the Holy Spirit, but for Saul, it's the exact opposite. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Verses 13 and 14 are mirror images. David is given the Holy Spirit to enable him, but the Holy Spirit departs from Saul. And in the wake of that departure, Saul becomes a tormented man. Now, in verse 14, when we read evil spirit in the New International Version, that's the translation uh, that they use here, we immediately think demon, don't we? Evil spirit. But the word can be translated differently. It doesn't necessarily mean that God sent a demon into, into Saul. It could, be, it could be translated an injurious spirit or a distressing spirit. And even the spirit part of that can mean a psychological distress that Saul begins to manifest. And in fact, we know that he does manifest that. 
Soon we will see Saul in bouts of depression, in bouts of rage, bouts of paranoia and melancholy. These kinds of things begin almost immediately to be uh, demonstrated in Saul's life. And the servants who serve the king in the, in the palace and the courts uh, of the king, they pick up on the fact that something's wrong with Saul. Something needs to be done. He needs to be comforted uh, and he needs to... Uh, uh, be, be able to pull out of his bout with his psychological distress. And so, what they determine needs to be done is some music therapy. And uh, that's what is exactly has to happen in verse uh, 17 of chapter 16. It says, So Saul and his attendants find someone, Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. And one of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior, and he speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. And that's David. And what we see God doing here is God is weaving the circumstances together so that David becomes acquainted with the, uh, uh, the orbit of the palace of the king. And he's there initially to soothe Saul in his depression. We've all been soothed by music from time to time. I think of the uh, Christmas carols by a crackling fire at Christmas time and how soothing that music is or the comfort that comes to a crying infant when his mom starts singing lullabies. I read recently uh, uh, from a Psycho Psychology Today magazine, they ran an article about a mental uh, institution in Great Britain, and one side of that, uh, that asylum is next to a Methodist chapel, and the Methodist chapel has a daily hymn sing, and what they discover is the people who are placed on that side of this asylum get better faster than those who are placed on the other side. Music has a way of soothing our souls. And David comes to the courts of the king and he plays his harp to Saul. With this result, verse 23, whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul and he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And there we see the irony of the next king soothing the current suffering king with his music. But we can turn that into a challenge for ourselves. Because let's take the word music and have it mean influence. Influence. If music in this sense means influence, the question is, what kind of music flows from our life? What kind of influence do we have when we are with people? Is the effect of our nearness soothing to others, comforting to others? Or does the music of our life breed discord and bitterness? David and Saul are, are not friends. They will not turn into friends. Saul, no doubt, by this time in his life is hard to be around and a little scary. But David comes, he plays his music, and that influence causes distress to flee from Saul's life and comfort to come. David is on the path to greatness. And part of that pathway is to bring this kind of comfort to others. And we are meant to walk that same path. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Paul is saying, you have received comfort in the past so that you can bring comfort in the present. David's path to greatness included blessing and comforting King Saul. And the challenge for us just this next week is to look for opportunities to seek to influence others to bring God's comfort, God's peace, and God's blessing. Because that is still the pathway to greatness in the eyes of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these brief life lessons that we can glean from the situation in David's life as he emerges onto the stage. Lord, we recognize that as we continue through 1 Samuel, we will see David do great things. And Lord, it starts with being willing to have a heart that would bless others. Lord, give us that kind of heart. Enable us to see the opportunities and to take those opportunities courageously for you. We want to influence those around us with the influence of the Holy Spirit. So bless and use us in that way, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.